0: weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: Welcome to the Joan Hamburg Show. Sunday, 2 o'clock. We do it every Sunday at 2. And you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter. We're everywhere. And I love sharing all our guests with you. We have a really good show every week. But... I'm sort of partial. My old friend, Ken Oletta, who writes for The New Yorker, is a wonderful writer, just has a new book out called Hollywood Ending, and it's about Harvey Weinstein and the culture of silence. It's about this guy who's now in jail as a convicted rapist, and for decades, this power guy with power movies... When undetected, no one turned him in, including his victims, until the Me Too movement. And then they all turned him in, and as a result, he's in jail. But it's a fascinating and sort of revolting look at this guy. Like, what happened that he turned into such an abuser, a person who was basically evil. And it's also a story about Hollywood. And it's a story about power. So even though you may say to yourself, do I really want to read about this disgusting human being? It was a fascinating look behind the scenes. And it still goes on. Power. And what happens to certain people when they get it and how they abuse it and how the culture of fear and silence still reigns supreme. It's a big deal. And I was fascinated by it. And by the way, I'm very happy to be back with you. I was off for a couple of weeks and, um, you know, it's interesting because Fortunately, I'm very rarely sick. I'd never even had a doctor, which is ironic. But I got this weird thing that involves your esophagus. Now, you tell me, did you even know you had an esophagus? Who dealt with stuff like that? Never thought about it. Never felt a symptom. Never felt sick. And yet I ended up with this thing, which could have been really serious. And if you want to know about trauma... My voice was affected. And for a couple of weeks, I had a hard time with my voice. And I thought, I can't believe this. Could anyone have found this or whatever it is? I still don't know what it's called or picked it up. But luckily, I had a doctor friend who was brilliant and found it and got to someone, and got there in time, and it was taken care of. But it was really scary. And I don't know what lessons ought to be learned. I mean, I don't know if a doctor could have picked it up because it was asymptomatic until it wasn't. You know, it was like my esophagus just went crazy. And I'm not kidding when I said, who even knew about your esophagus? Who thinks about that stuff? So now, as my kids always say, so what are you going to take away? You're going to now go for regular checkups? I said, well, I can't answer that because even if I went and there were no symptoms, what would they be looking for if I had nothing to complain about? I don't know. But it's it was an ordeal because I just didn't know what it was until... We had this great team that did. And I was at Columbia Presbyterian, which is a superb hospital. So anyway, whatever it is, is not. And I'm happy to be back with you and talking to all the people I like to share, whether it's Daniel Silva. he he's If you're going to read thrillers, you've got to read him. He's one of my favorites. And now, of course, Ken Oletta, who is a wonderful writer. You read him. He does a column, Annals of Communication in the New Yorker, all the time. And he's a look behind the scenes at the abuse and use of power to manipulate and how there is a culture of silence and shame for even the most intelligent human beings, they're afraid. And they're afraid of jobs. And that was really interesting. And how Hollywood is still filled with this. And not only Hollywood. I came of age in the advertising business. And it was not like Harvey. But it wasn't good, you know, when it came to women and how women were treated. It's it's all interesting. Anyway, the book is, even though I didn't want to hear more about Harvey, it was a really fascinating read. He's an excellent writer and does good research. So it's called Hollywood Ending. But we've got such a good show for you today. And I'm so happy you can share it. And don't forget, we do this every Sunday at 2 o'clock. And you can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter... You name it, we're there. So come along, be part of the gang. I'm Joan Hamburg, and we've got a lot of shows straight ahead.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio. This is Joan Eats.
1: One of the trends we're seeing in New York is restaurants packaging, bottling, shipping some of their favorite products. We saw this with Rayo's and the Rayo's marinara sauce, which is Hugely popular and delicious. So one of New York's leading Italian restaurants, Carbone, is now selling their pasta sauce online and in supermarkets. The sauce is a hit. And the fact, they have many versions of the marinara sauce. The spicy one won the People's Choice Award. And they claim it's bursting with fresh tomato flavor. It's got heat. It's delicious. In fact, Rayo's, they're similar. You know, people are always comparing them. It's about, depending on the market, $9 for a 24-ounce jar in the market. I've often seen carbones on sale. Last week, believe it or not, Stop and Shop had it for four ninety-nine. It comes in six varieties. The easiest one to find was the marinara. Or the tomato basil. But there are a lot of them. And they have really good products. I looked at the marinara label. It's whole Italian tomatoes, tomato puree, sea salt, onions. Good stuff. They're made in small batches. No sugar. No GMOs. Go online to carbone, Z-A-R-B-O-N-E, finefoods.com. Shipping is free for any four-pack. And a four-pack... Costs thirty nine ninety six. I found it at my neighborhood, D'Agostino. This restaurant was created by Mario Carbone and a couple of top restaurant people in Greenwich Village. In fact, the restaurant got a Michelin star back in 2013. So you're getting something really delicious. I know a lot of you say, I make my own. Well, I make my own, too. But when you have sauce this good, you don't have to. So check it out, affordable in most of the markets. I know you're going to enjoy it.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: A new book that people are talking about by um, a wonderful writer, you know Ken Oletta. He's been doing his um, communications column, profiles for the New Yorker for many years. This is Ken's 13th book, Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Science. And as I said to Ken right before we started, you know, he's one of the most disgusting, despicable characters you have ever heard about, read about, know about. But I couldn't stop reading the book and saying to myself, plenty of people have horrible childhoods, crazy parents, and they survive it. What happened here where this man became, as he was called, a monster? He has a brother who... Wasn't such a Boy Scout either, but got over it and sort of has been redeemed. Anyway, can you have been dealing with Harvey for many years, for better or for worse.
2: True. I, I, and fortunately, I don't have to deal with him anymore, Joe.
1: No, this book put it to bed. Was it with a big sigh of relief?
2: Well, actually, I, I was fascinated. I had written about, profiled him in the New York in 2002 and, and portrayed him as, as an abusive, volatile personality, uh, but also a talented uh, movie executive. And, but I came within inches of nailing him for, on being a, a sexual predator, but I couldn't get the woman to talk to me. Um, but when he was exposed by the brilliant reporting of two New York Times reporters Farrick, right. in October of
0: 2017,
2: I said, but there's still mysteries to this guy. How did he become a monster? What happened in the relationship between he, he and his brother, his closest associate, where his brother in the end fired him? What? what how did he use and abuse power? Uh, what, what? Who were the people who allowed him to keep this secret for more than four days? Decades. Those were some of the mysteries I was interested in exploring in a full biography of Bobby Weinstein.
1: Well, and that's what the reader, me, kept asking: How could this have been hidden and covered up for decades? What happened here? Everyone knew. You know, ironically, Ken, one of my kids' best friends. From high school, John Gordon got a job when he was a kid as an intern for him. And we were like, oh, what a lucky break, you know, for this kid who wants to be in the movie business. So it was fascinating. And then, of course, I read some of John's stuff in your your book. But it was also a journey for those of us who don't know, a journey about power and how it's exploited. And particularly in the film industry, did anything surprise you going along this uh, complicated research?
2: Well, a lot of things surprised me. I I mean, I did learn in terms of the reason I always kept a secret. Harvey believed that the key to power was fear. People had to fear you. And he, he invested a lot of effort in making sure people feared him. And and so people kept quiet because of that. Among the things that did surprise me, uh, learning about his mother. His mother, Miriam, was a very person, and she dominated the household when Harvey was a child. But she yelled all the time. She yelled so much, in fact, that his friends who played poker every weekend at a different home would never agree to play poker at the Weinstein home. Why? Because Miriam yelled too much. Harvey, you're too fat. Harvey, stop doing this. Harvey, that. And, and very dominant person. So her role and, and, and how she normalized yelling, which became a staple in, in the Weinstein, in both the Miramax and the Weinstein Company after it, Harvey and Bob yelled all the time. And, and that was a reflection of what they grew up to think of as normal. I was also amazed and surprised by the fact that Harvey had no incidents that I could find of sexual abuse in junior high school or high school or even the first three years of college at the University of Buffalo, he only began to abuse women when he had power. And and he had mm-hmm. power first in, as a rock promoter in Buffalo, before he entered the movie business. And and then it escalated when he had more power in the movie business. But he did not abuse women until he had power. And and power became a kind of an aphrodisiac for him.
1: Right. And, and as you point out, too, it wasn't just about the sex. It was about the power and what he held over these people. And when you're reading the book, I'm saying to myself, well, what happened to all these people, these actors, these actresses? I mean, he abused men too in a different way. But what happened to them? Was it all about getting work and afraid, like Gwyneth Paltrow? says he was making the movies then.
2: So well, clearly, if you're an ambitious actor or actress, you wanted to be in a Harvey movie. Miramax was doing these great movies, My Left Foot, Crying Game, Sex, Lives, and Videotape, Shakespeare in Love. And if you had aspirations to maybe one day win an Academy Award, the place you wanted to be was not at a big studio, which is making it Batman and all these sequel movies, but a Miramax movie where, where you had a, real, a better shot at being... An Academy Award winner, so they gravitated and they wanted to seek his favor. But what happened was that many these actresses who wanted to seek his favor, he wanted something in return—sex. Hmm.
1: And the 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 other the amazing story, which could be another book alone, is the story of Harvey and his brother, oh, okay. who also played a major role in all of this, but you question, how did the brother escape this? Why did the brother not turn out like Harvey? They have the same background.
2: I think the brother is a better human being than, than Harvey was. He's very talented, by the way, in many ways. he made, Many years, he made more money. His Dimension movies right. under the Merrimack's label made more money than Merrimack's movies, Harvey's movies did. But Bob became an alcoholic. And and then he saw treatment for alcohol. Joined out Alcoholics Anonymous, saw a treatment for it, and became a very reflective person, looking inside himself, trying to figure out how to make himself a better person, how to avoid the pitfalls that he saw his brother uh, falling into. And and Bob, you know, just became a better person, and obviously never partook in the kind of sexual assaults that Harvey did. Uh, very close to his brother. Uh, they came apart. And and partly because his brother had become a narcissist, partly because Bob thought his brother was out of control with his spending and, and endangering the company. And in the end, um, at one point in, in 2015, Harvey sucker punched Bob, broken, breaking his nose. They made peace, but it was a very cold peace. Finally, when Harvey was exposed in October 2017, he um, What Bob did, Bob, Bob's vote was critical to fire Harvey from the Weinstein Company.
1: Right. And I wonder about the guilt that he must have felt or even that he still feels when he sees the fate of of this brother.
2: I don't think Bob feels guilt. Bob feels that justice was done, that his, his brother was a bad person and he was found guilty for the right reasons, Bob stopped speaking to Harvey in early 2018. They haven't spoken since. And so he, he basically is divorced from his brother and feels that his brother uh, was, not, was not a good human being and, and deserves the punishment he's receiving.
1: Did you end up feeling sorry at all for Harvey at this stage in his life? Sort of, does anyone no. come to visit this guy?
2: Well, yeah, his three daughters from his first marriage don't speak to him. His brother doesn't speak to him. His first wife doesn't speak to him. Mm-hmm. His two little kids from his second wife are in New York. He's been waiting a trial in Los Angeles, so they don't. His wife has a chill, His second wife has a chilly distance from him. his former friends. Most of them have peeled away. So Harvey is alone in a wheelchair in a prison in L.A., awaiting trial. Do I feel sorry for him? I don't feel sorry for him. I think he's gotten a just sentence uh, that he deserved. Do I think about him as a human being? What it must feel like to be in prison after flying in private planes and making movies and standing on the Academy Awards stage so many years? Of course. How could you not think about it? So mm-hmm. so you think about the. Tra- but I think more about the tragedy of it than the sadness of it. I, I, I don't feel empathy for him. Though I, I I do wonder, my God, what goes through his mind as he sits eating baked beans in prison?
1: Right. And and how can he possibly, with all the problems that he has medically, too, get through or even want to get through? What a nightmare all of this is.
2: Yeah, I, I, a, I mean, you, you, you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't think about that uh, to him. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not filled with rage, so much rage that I can't look past it and say, oh, my God, what a, what a life, what a fall.
1: Right, what a fall. And did any of the victims who never came forth until everyone came forth, are they, how do they feel that they sat on this, that they just let it? It was well, a horrible it, it, experience.
2: But they were afraid. I mean one of the things one of the big obstacles for the prosecution in the Harvey case the criminal trial in New York was how do you explain why women who, who Harvey allegedly raped still kept in touch with them afterwards? Right. And and the defense defense would argue because these women were ambitious, they wanted some. But one of the defense One of the prosecution witnesses that the prosecution called to the stand was Dr. Barbara Ziv of Temple University. And she's an expert on rape. And one of the things she said, which really stayed with me and I think stayed with the jury, she said that 40% of the women in America who are raped continue to keep in touch with the person who raped them. And they do for reasons. Sometimes because they're afraid. Sometimes because of the denial that it ever happened to them. Sometimes because they blame themselves for it happening. For various reasons, they keep in touch with that that person. And the jury bought that argument. So many of these women who were his victims, as I report in the book, have, have it's taken a huge toll on their life. Some of them became alcoholics or turned to drugs. Uh, they've had, many of them have had to struggle after the horrors that they went through with Harvey. So it's it's, it's, it's you know, you, you have, your heart bleeds.
1: Right, and at the at the soul of this era, the casting couch was part of our vocabulary, but now we're at a different time, and is power still exploited, do you think, in the film oh. industry and in the entertainment world?
2: Oh, I, I, of course it is. I mean, you, you can't be in a... One of the things that's peculiar about Hollywood and the entertainment world is that beautiful young women work side by side or in close proximity to heads of studios, producers, directors, people in, in power. And and if you're in power, you tend to have a large ego. And when one of these attractive young women say to you, oh, Mr. Weinstein, I love your movies, oh, that was a great speech you made today. It's, it's not uncommon for people like Harvey Weinstein or people in power to compliment with a come on. And, and so the casting couch, ambitious young woman wanting a role in Hollywood, people with power saying, thinking they can make a trade. I want something from you, you want something from me. But there's a difference between the casting couch, which was Harvey's Defense House, and rape. Harvey was raping women. That's a criminal, that's a crime. And, and, and that's way beyond the couch that, that has existed for many right. decades in, in Hollywood.
1: So when all is said and done, did you answer that question of what contributed to his criminal behavior? You know, I kept thinking about his screaming, yelling parents, but there are people who grow up like that. and And don't become monsters. Bob
2: didn't become a sexual predator. Right. Um, I I mean, I came to the conclusion that there is no one rosebud that that simply explains why Harvey became the monster. There are various things. I mean, obviously, the yelling and and the the thirst for dominance is part of it. Power, how it went to his head is part of it. But I, I basically concluded, and I write this in the book, that Harvey's a sociopath. And, and, and he, he basically is an out-of-control person who, who thought it was normal to abuse people, including women.
1: Hi, Do you think if you talked to him today, you would get anything different out of him?
2: No. You know, I, we had email exchanges from prison, which are in the book. But one of the questions I asked him, which I was dying to ask him, relevant to your question you're asking me now— and a question he did not answer, but I wrote in an email, which is PR person passed on to him. I said, Harvey, after you raped, let's say, Jessica Mann, who was one of the women who testified against him in the trial. After you raped Jessica Mann and you put your head on the pillow at night, how did you explain to yourself what you were just done? Harvey didn't answer that question. But I think if he had, since he doesn't think he's a villain, he thinks he's a victim. He would right. say, hey, it was casting couch. She wanted something from me, a job in Hollywood. I wanted something from her. It was consensual. She, it was a fair trade we made. And I, I suspect that's what his honest answer would be if he answered that question.
1: Yeah, well, which is fascinating. And I love when he you quote him, and I'm misquoting now because I don't have the book in front of me, but when he was talking about all these women were talking and telling all these terrible stories. And he said, we had so much fun. We had such a good time.
0: And he believed it.
1: It, it. Yeah. And they looked
2: at this was on. this was just before he was sentenced. He asked to speak to the to the courtroom and the jury and the judge. And and he looked at the woman who six of them were seated in the front row. And he said, we had such good times. I mean, I, I feel for you. And a minute after he said that, he switched and and again portrayed himself as a victim of of a kind of a new McCarthyism that was taking place and treating men as if they were all sex fiends and and canceling them out and how terrible it was. So, again, he portrayed himself, as he did throughout the trial, as a victim responsibility for what he had done.
1: Right, as a victim. And like anyone who's reading the book— I'm trying to find some link that would cause this to happen in people. And I couldn't really find it. He was a bad guy with bad DNA somewhere along the way.
2: I think that's right. I, I mean, I resisted the urge to to succumb to what I call psychobabble, which is acting like a miniature psychiatrist and, and pretending to know what caused Harvey to become the Monster, the monster.
1: Did right, and have no sense of doing wrong.
2: But the definition of a sociopath, the doctor's definition, and, and in the book, I've heard of doctors, professional doctors, about this. There are three qualifications to become listed as a psych, as a sociopath. One is, is you're a narcissist. Harvey certainly was a narcissist. Two is that you have no empathy, witness how we treated the woman in the the trial and otherwise, Harvey had no empathy. And the third is lack of guilt. You see, Harvey had no guilt. He thinks he's a victim. Now, you could be, you could have all three of those qualities and not be a sociopath, obviously. But I I believe Harvey, based on the number of times, over 100 women have come forward since he was exposed in October 2017. Over 100 women have come forward to claim that Harvey sexually abused them. That's a sociopath.
1: That's a sociopath. And you wonder if the power players who are still engaging in this behavior read this book and go, "Uh uh-oh, I got to get off this train. Or you think it just goes on.
2: Well, I I think it's probably abated some. I mean, men uh, who have power who might be prone to abuse women because they think with their penis, not with their head. Um, they, they they don't want to happen to them what happened to Harvey and to Matt Lauer and, and Les Moonband and goes on right. Those, uh, uh. But uh the the question I have in my mind is this a short term improvement or is it a long term improvement? And we don't know the answer to that yet.
1: No. But the book should definitely add a punch to what people are thinking. Thank you, Ken. It was a fascinating you, read. Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein, and the Culture of Science by Ken Oletta. Thank you guys for joining. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.
0: The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC.
1: All right, everyone. I was a little worried that my favorite spy and art restorer, Gabriel Alan, wouldn't be back fast enough for me. But thank goodness he apparently was no longer going to be dealing with Israeli intelligence, he was going to be like a real person walking his kids to school in Venice. But I knew that with author Daniel Silver, he couldn't just bop around Venice. It, It wasn't going to work. So in this new book, Portrait of an Unknown Woman, Gabriel does something different. I mean, this book takes us into another world. We're not dealing necessarily with Chinese spies, the Middle East that much. We're dealing with another very dark world, the world of art. And I know you love music. Everyone who reads you knows that. But I didn't know that you were obsessed with art too. Is that new or what?
3: No, no. I mean, art has played a big, big role in in the Gabriel Law series from the beginning. I mean, he truly is one of the world's finest art restorers. And a number of the books have started in the art world and then branched into um, the rest often to counterterrorism or, uh, you know, gabriel's duels with russian intelligence or, or even the iran nuclear program that the book called the rembrandt affair it was it had its, it the story had its origins in the art world um, and but this book is something that i've wanted to do for a very very long time it it begins in the art world and for the most part it stays in the art world so when we say that art world we're talking about the dirty end of the art right. world um, um, as, you, as you said in your introduction, Gabriel has retired from the Israeli uh, Secret Intelligence Service. He was the director general of, 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 of the office, as I call it. Um, as forecast a couple of books ago, he and his family settle in Venice. Gabriel is, um, resumes his career as an art restorer. Uh, he works for his wife, actually, um, who, is the, who is the director, or the, the general manager of the largest most important restoration company in Venice um, and in short order uh, Gabriel is drawn into a um, a search for quite probably the greatest art forger who ever lived um, and the twist of the story is that in order to find the greatest art forger who ever lived Gabriel has to become the greatest art forger who ever lived. And it is a, a fast-paced, um, entertaining, at times uproariously funny journey through the dirty side of the art world. It's sort of a cross between the Thomas Crown Affair and the and the Showtime program Billions. Um, and it deals with a, a question that a lot of people in the art world don't like to talk about. And that is exactly how many of those beautiful paintings that you see hanging in art galleries or hanging on the walls of museums, how many of those paintings are actually um, fakes and forgeries or paintings that have been misattributed over the, over the centuries?
1: And I'm interested in hearing the reaction of the art community when (laughs) the word about this book started circulating.
3: (laughs) Well, I, I got, um, I got uh, the wonderful reaction from my, my expert readers who I turned to for, for help. Um I I did I did uh, get a suggestion that maybe I should keep a low profile if I go to the European Fine Arts Fair next year. Exactly. Um because the 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 book um you know I didn't I didn't I didn't name a, a, a figure in, in the in the um in the in the book but it does suggest that that there are a lot of that, that forgery is a major problem in the art world and that there are that there are uh, gobs and gobs of forgeries coursing through the bloodstream of the commercial art world and that there are a lot of dirty art dealers out there who are more than willing to, to sell these things um, and and that is uh, unfortunately that is indeed the case
1: right and the art market in this town has been booming and it's you know you often hear people say I'm forget the market I'm going into the art market and yes, so you do. right
3: and that is um it's something that I they ground that I cover in this novel I mean look the art market exploded in the 1980s as you remember um and back then there were very you know, super wealthy people who were buying up um, art and and locking it away in bank vaults and things like that, but that that has really accelerated uh, to the point where now um, art, unfortunately, and I mean that, uh, unfortunately, has become just another. Yeah. asset class just another um, um um investment vehicle for a lot of people and 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 people are investing in art purely uh for speculative reasons and look in 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 the geneva freeport which i've used in a couple of books there are there, there is art are an estimated one million paintings locked away in vaults inside the Geneva Freeport. One million paintings, perhaps wow. 10,000 Picassos, just sitting in darkened rooms in crates. Um, and if they're held by uh, um, uh, very rich people, they trade hands secretly. Um, they will never, many of them will never ever be seen again. Um, Many of them will never even hang on the walls of a of a beautiful home. They're just locked away, um, like gold bars. Um, I, I'm I'm not naive. Um, money has made the art world go round from the beginning. And if it wasn't for the financial support of the Medici, for example, there wouldn't have been a Renaissance. If it wasn't for the financial support of the church, you know, masterpiece after masterpiece would not have been painted. But there really is. I think something wrong with just investing in art for purely purely uh, speculative uh, and financial reasons it just rubs me the wrong way
1: i'm talking to Daniel Silva, the award winning uh, new york times best selling author. I think this is the twenty fifth novel I could be wrong it is
2: it
3: it is the twenty fifth novel uh it is a milestone year for me
1: you know when you think back of how you started it's really fascinating the twists and turns your career has taken sort of like gabriel
3: um you know i i think that um most people who have in effect two careers um consider themselves lucky and i i definitely had two careers the first half of my career um, I, I was a journalist, um, and then in, in my mid-30s, I, I was able to um, focus all my time uh, writing novels, which was what I always wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, I have, I'm li- a bit like Gabriel in that I, I definitely have two sides to my my character. Um, fortunately, I am married to a journalist, so I didn't leave the news business uh, completely behind. Uh, most of my friends in, in, in Washington are, are journalists. but um, um, I, I I did uh, move on to a second career in, in my mid-30s and, and never looked back. And I'm um, amazed that I was able to, to make a go of it and that I've published 25 books. I, I I never thought I would write that many books.
1: Right. And book number one, your first book, became a bestseller. What most of us would talk about is how... Did you know this stuff? I mean, I know you do extensive research, but as the world was falling apart, you were like a jump ahead. And how? You knew what was going on in Russia, in China. You knew the biggest crooks and spies before they even knew they were.
3: <laughs> I I guess... You know, I'm writing about an intelligence officer, and I sort of approached my work um, as though I were an intelligence officer. The worst thing that you can do in in the spy business is to be taken by surprise. You always have to look over the horizon. What's coming? What's the world going to be like um, one year from now? five years from now, 10 years from now, how do we plan? And, and that's how I went about my, my, um, my my books. You know, I have to, I have to start a book in effect, you know, a year before it's published. Um, So it has to be um, timely. It it has to be uh, of the moment. The worst thing a thriller can be is, is out of date. And, And so it, 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 it forced me to, to think ahead and to try to imagine, well, what is the world going to be like when I publish this novel? Uh, and our times are, 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 you know, move at the speed of light, the news cycle changes, events are just coming at us. Like you know, I mean, try, try to imagine what happened in the 20 years that Gabriel Lawn, 22 years that Gabriel Law has, has been a character. Um, I mean, 9-11 the financial crisis, the rise of Putin, the rise of, 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 of ISIS, um, the rise of the far-right in in Europe and, I would argue, here in America. Um, you know, things of a global pandemic. I mean, monumental events. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, uh, the Gabriel Lantour uh, book has sort of served as a I have chronicled those events for the last 20 years through my fiction.
1: Right. But the thing is, you're describing these events, and most of us had no clue and were shocked as event after event happened. But you knew, or you seemed to know, and you took us there I, with I him. Had a
3: sense, I had a sense that, that that things were going in this direction. I, I had a sense Um i I planned accordingly and wrote accordingly um i mean I was the first person to write vladimir putin and and Putinism as not a not an ally of the west or potential ally of the west but i it was clear to me what was really going on um with Vladimir Putin and what he intended and that 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 um should be clear to everyone now that he is, is invaded Ukraine and killed innocent civilians and bombed shopping centers and apartment buildings. It's just, um, uh, he, 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 he's engaged in an act that, that make him among the most barbarous, awful people in in, in, in history.
1: So now, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to Gabriel now that he's... In- he always was a painter and a restorer, but so serious about it. Yeah. Where are we going to follow him now?
3: Well, I had always planned with Gabriel, this is a 22nd book, that this is where the story would end. Okay, After he finished his his term as Director General of, of Israeli Intelligence, um, I wanted to... Put him back in an artistic context. Um, will he be drawn into operations and and and, and uh, uh, um, international intrigue, for lack of a better term, uh, geopolitics in the future? Almost certainly. Um, but this book really is a series um, reset in a way. And if you if you look at it carefully, I. I retouched gabriel a little bit it's a, it's a um it's a t- it's a bit of a departure, but it's also a, a series reboot and this is where how how the the um the Elan series will progress
1: yeah well that's what we're hoping please don't retire him
3: no. <laughs> not yet not yet
1: we're not ready for him to leave us yet
3: neither <laughs> am i i'm really i am i am looking forward to um uh, to, the, to, the, to the series going forward. I have a number of, of books that I'd like to get to. Um, this is something that I've been wanting to write for about five years. I couldn't write it because of, because of, um, of the kind of work that Gabriel was doing at the time. I loved writing this book. Um, I love the reaction that I've gotten thus far to it. it, it I, I, I laughed Throughout the the uh, the writing process, it was so much fun to write, and and I hope that comes through when people read it.
1: It does. I love this book, Daniel Silver, portrait of an unknown woman, and don't worry, everything is going to be all right. But there's going to be <laughs> a lot more a lot more excitement, and I'm still waiting for the television series. Sure. I, I don't I, know,
3: but it, these it, go- it, um. It, to quote one of my favorite lines from the, from the from the from the the series, "Steinfeld," wheels are in motion, things are happening, and hopefully by the time I, we talk next year, there'll be some more news on that front.
1: Okay, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, thank Danielle. You. All the best to you. You provided us with a great read, a whole new thank twist, you. and a new look at one of our favorite characters. So thank we'll, you so
3: much. I appreciate that.
1: We'll talk soon. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC with the one and only Daniel Silver. Stay tuned for more.
0: The First Lady of New York
1: Radio. This is Ask Joan. One of the questions that I often get is, I want to meet someone. I'm alone, I'm divorced, I'm single, whatever. And whenever I say, do you know about date night at the Met? People are like, what? Yeah. Friday and Saturdays from 5 to 9, the fabulous Metropolitan Museum at Fifth Avenue, 1005th in New York City, has it. They host it. And during the summer until September 3rd, it will include the Sunset Series. That's an electronic musical event on the rooftop. It's a perfect activity when you want to be with people, you want live music, drinks, maybe meet someone, and it's good music, drink specials, and it's a lot of fun, I promise you. So they're all free with museum admission, which is always pay what you want for New York State residents, and New Jersey, Connecticut, if you're a student with a valid ID. And pay-what-you-wish tickets can only be reserved in, purchase, uh, in person and can't be purchased online. Go to metmuseum.org, $30 tickets for adults, 22 for seniors, 17 for students. And it's something I know you're going to enjoy. Check it out and then let us know. Who knows? You might meet someone. All right, everyone, I'm looking at the clock. And it's time to say goodbye and make room for Curtis Lewa. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joan Hamburg. And, of course, this is your favorite radio station, WABC.